Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation, our third installment in our series of reflections on the book of Revelation. And again, we will probably be in this book for anywhere from three to four months. Now, before I get into our principal subject matter for tonight, I did want to recognize someone. As many of you know, uh, for those of you who are tuning in locally, my nephew this past week, also named Joseph Holcraft, uh, passed away, uh, was killed in a tragic car accident. He was hit by a drunk driver in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. And I've been asked by a number of you out there to comment on Joseph, and certainly I was planning on it. You know, there's a lot that I would like to say uh, that we could be here, quite frankly, all evening, because Joseph, he was only 22 years of age, and yet he was a man who understood so much of what we talk about here on Seeds of Truth. And by that I mean he was a man of virtue, he was a man of deep integrity, and he was a man of great faith. Great faith. You hear me talk about so often the importance of living in God so as to exist for other. His relationship with Jesus Christ was so important to him, and as it was, he was able to express that love in such a beautiful and humble way. I have been so struck by the outpouring of love and how so many people have been impacted by this young man who was only 22 years old, 22 years old. Joseph Holcraft, my nephew, was a model, a model of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a Catholic because he lived in God. God first. God first. This is why he impacted so many people. And because he was so in love with God, he was in love with everyone around him. Every person, so many people from so many different walks of life have been touched by him profoundly, profoundly. And that's what has struck me. I lose a nephew. I lose a friend. I lose a roommate. I lose many things, but I know all of us have lost something. Why? Because of his love for Jesus Christ. And out from that love for Jesus Christ, which if you knew him, you know that he loved other. He loved other. Someone said, what virtues do you think of when you think about Joseph? Certainly the virtue of humility. Certainly the virtue of humility. And also the virtue of silence. But what do you mean? Joseph understood well when to say what, if at all. So often we get caught up in this idea that if something's on our heart, we need to share it. And sometimes we fall over our words and the outcome isn't always what you hoped it to be. Often what's missing there, mea culpa, is that quiet discernment. Okay, Lord, you've put something in my heart, but is right now the time to say it? Joseph, only 22 years old, remarkably, really, understood that well. So when you ask me, as his uncle, what are the virtues that he embodied? 
the virtues of humility, and the virtue of silence. And this was a source of freedom for him. Because as many of you know, again, who know Joseph, you know that he could be as silly as anyone. He was a joy to be around. Because, brothers and sisters, he was free. He was free to be who God called him to be. So as we grieve his loss, what I would say to you is what God has put on my heart. Celebrate to the virtue of this man and what, although not with us anymore in the corporal dimension, is still teaching us something about God, to the least of which how to live in in the virtues of Jesus Christ and how this frees us to be the person that God is calling us to be. So many of us were impacted by Joseph because Joseph was Joseph. He wasn't pretending to be anything that he wasn't. And this, again, is something we need to be thinking about. It is an honor that I can call him nephew, uh, friend, and roommate. And I know for all of you out there, and, and many of you listeners, maybe you don't know him, and you're probably right now wishing you did, huh? Let him inspire us to be the person that God is calling us to be. You know, we are here studying the book of Revelation. And this evening, we're going to get into how the book of Revelation in so many ways is about the liturgy in heaven. And I am convinced with the, the masses and the prayers being said for this young man that he is sharing. And the very thing that we are going to be talking about this evening, and that brings me joy. And my hope for all of you out there who have met Joseph, who know Joseph, this might bring you joy too. Not that you can't grieve. We need to grieve. God weeps with us. He came down from heaven to be with us, to weep with us. He weeps. God weeps. And he weeps with us during this time. But know too that the other side of love is also joy. Suffering and joy. And in saying that, I do want to ask something uh, from you to pray for his parents, Ray and Monica, and his siblings as well. Maria, Aaron, Rachel, Hannah, and Gianna. Okay, with that, let us engage our third installment of Reflections on the Book of Revelation. If the Book of Revelation is something that we talked about last time as happening nearly 2,000 years ago, then what relevance does it have for us today? Is there really going to be a second coming? If so, when will it be? So let's look at this. While Jesus did prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, its fall, my dear friends, is not the end of the story. Again, as stated in our last time together, the destruction of the temple is a symbol for the ultimate end of the world. So the destruction of the temple points us forward to a time when Jesus will return again. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that the Lord is coming back to raise the dead and lead us into the heavenly kingdom. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. Now this passage says nothing of people being left behind as a result of the rapture, a concept that is prevalent, I know, in many Protestant circles. The word rapture never even occurs here, nor does it occur anywhere else in the Bible. Although the church does not accept this Protestant view of the rapture, and certainly our conversations over the series of the next three months are going to talk about this in great deal, and I welcome any dialogues about this for those of you out there who might differ in what I'm talking about right now. I do really welcome the dialogue. Um, So although the church does not, that is the Catholic church, does not accept this Protestant view of the rapture, she does teach that Christ will come again at the end of time, raise the dead, and take all the saints, body and soul, into heaven. As the Catechism reminds us in paragraph 671, though already present in his church, Christ's reign is nevertheless yet to be fulfilled with power and great glory by the king's return to the earth. Thus, Christians have prayed from the earliest times. From thence he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Yet, there's also much more the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, shows us. The book of Revelation is unique among all ancient apocalyptic books. While other apocalyptic books might mention an altar or the temple, none of them feature liturgical themes as promptly as the book of Revelation does. Revelation is full of liturgical images, and this is what Dr. Scott Hahn really gets into in the Lamb's Supper. Chalices, incense, hymns, altars, priests. In fact, Benedict XVI calls the Apocalypse the book of the heavenly liturgy, which is presented to the church as the standard for her own liturgy. Scott Hahn lists a number of things familiar to Catholics from the Mass that are also found in the book of Revelation. I'm not going to go through them all, but just consider with me a few. Sunday worship itself, chapter 1, verse 10. A high priest, chapter 1, verse 13. An altar, chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. Chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 14, verse 18. Priests, chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 11, verse 15, to name a few there. Vestments. Vestments, my dear friends, are everywhere in the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 9, to name a few. There's more. How about consecrated celibacy? Chapter 14, verse 4. Lampstands, the menorah, right? Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 5. We see incense, the book, the Eucharistic host, of course, in chapter 2, verse 17. We see chalices, chapter 15, verse 7. In chapter 21, verse 9, how about the sign of the cross, chapter 7, verse 3, the Gloria, the Alleluia, this call we have to lift up our hearts, chapter 11, verse 12, the Holy, 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 in chapter 4, verse 8, the Lamb of God itself, chapter 5, verse 6. Oh, my dear friends, there's so much liturgical imagery. As Michael Barber draws out in his work coming soon, We can also identify the Mass and the very structure of the book of Revelation, right? Revelation can be divided in three parts. First, you have seven letters calling for repentance. Next, there's a book with seven seals, which is opened, unleashing what? 
seven judgments. Finally, seven chalices are poured out, climaxing in what? But the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isn't that fascinating? So the book of Revelation shows us that the coming of the Lord in so many different ways is inseparable from the Catholic liturgy. It is in Eucharistic celebration that the Lord truly comes to the church. In fact, as you've heard me speak to this before, the word used in the New Testament for the Lord's coming is what? Parousia. The primary meaning of the word parousia is just not coming, but also presence and even invitation. Truly, the Lord's coming is found in the real presence of the blessed sacrament of the host, where Jesus is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Cardinal Ratzinger once said, every Eucharist is parousia, the Lord's coming. Now, I wanted to turn to the interview uh, between Peter Seewald and Benedict XVI. It's in book form called The Light of the World. I wanted to read for you a couple questions that are posited by Peter Seewald and in turn responded to by Benedict XVI. And I'll just go ahead and read these, and you'll see why I am as we explore them. This is Peter Seewald to Benedict XVI when he was Pope. All of our Lord's prophecies have come to pass, except one that has yet to be fulfilled, the prophecy of his second coming. Its fulfillment will finally make the word redemption fully true. I like that. He continues, You have coined, Holy Father, the term eschatological realism. What exactly does that mean? <laughs> Say that three times fast. Eschatological realism. And this is his response. It means that these things are not a kind of fictitious utopia, but that they correspond to reality. In fact, this is Benedict, we always have to keep present in our minds the fact that he tells us with the greatest certainty, I will come again. This statement comes before everything else. This is also why the Mass was originally celebrated facing east toward the returning Lord who is symbolized in the rising sun. I love that. Who is symbolized in the rising sun. Every Mass is therefore an act of going out to meet the one who is coming. You know, we were talking earlier about Joseph. You know, Joseph would seek to go to Mass every day because he understood he was meeting the one who was coming, right? Beautiful. In this way, his coming is also anticipated, as it were. We go out to meet him, and he comes anticipatively already now. I like to compare this with the account of the wedding at Cana. The first thing the Lord says to Mary, My hour has not yet come. But then, in spite of that, he gives the new wine, as it were, anticipating his hour, which is yet to come. This, here he goes, eschatological realism becomes present in the Eucharist. We go out to meet him as the one who comes, and he comes already now in anticipation of this hour, which one day will arrive once and for all. If we understand this as we should, we will go out to meet the Lord who has already been coming all along. We will enter into his coming, and so we'll allow ourselves to be fitted into a greater reality beyond the everyday, just as it is. Amen. So what is our Holy Father saying there? Well, 
that the Eucharist is the second coming. I wanted to briefly touch upon this other question. Peter Seewald asks, about 80 years ago, Faustino Kowalska, the Polish nun canonized by John Paul II, heard Jesus say in a vision, you will prepare the world for my definitive turn. Are we obliged to believe that? Benedict responds, if one took this statement in a chronological sense as an injunction to get ready, as it were, immediately for the second coming, it would be false. This is what we've been talking about, right? <laughs> it would be false. But it is correct if one understands it in the spiritual sense that was just explained as meaning that the Lord is always the one who comes and that we are always also preparing ourselves for his definitive coming, precisely when we go out to meet his mercy and allow ourselves to be formed by him, by letting ourselves be formed by God's gift of mercy as a force to counteract the mercilessness of the world then we prepare, as it were, for his own second coming in person and for his mercy. So what's going on here? Well, my dear friends, every time as Catholics we receive the Eucharist and we go out into the world, we are the second coming of Christ insofar as Christ lives within us. And that's what is so essential for us to understand as we continue to reflect into the book of Revelation as something specifically liturgical, okay? Now, we have to talk about something else here if we're going to appreciate what's going on here. John liked to use words with double meanings. The, the Greek does this. Uh, for example, in John chapter 3, Jesus uses the word panuma, which can mean either spirit or wind, spirit or wind. In speaking about the spiritual rebirth of baptism, through which man is born of water and spirit, he used, that is Christ, the double meaning of this word to explain the invisible work of of the Holy Spirit. The wind, as we read it in John chapter 3, verse 8, blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it. But you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, so the wind, panuma, right, is born of the Spirit, panuma. Okay, so there's a double meaning there. We talk about that because what we are made to understand is that John does something similar in the Apocalypse. In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 10, John tells us on which day of the week he saw the visions contained in the book of Revelation. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, what is the Lord's day? On one hand, it's the day that the Lord will come in judgment, foretold by the prophets and known as the day of the Lord. I mean, consider at least a few of the numerous prophecies on the day of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 10. That day is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. Ezekiel chapter 30, verses 2 to 3. Son of man, prophecy and say, thus says the Lord God, well, alas, for the day, the day is near. The day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for nations. So <laughs> day, day of the Lord speaks to judgment. Yet, yet, my friends, John's reference to the Lord's day has another meaning. In the early church, the Lord's day was the word used for what? Sunday. The day the Lord rose from the dead. It was on this day that the Eucharist was celebrated. If you were to go to the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 7, you read about this. 
Following the New Testament, the first Christians recognized Sunday as the Lord's day. Sunday, therefore, is the day of the Lord, since it is in the Eucharist that Christ, what? Comes again. This is why just before the consecration, the faithful pray what? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You follow that? Beautiful. So why does John portray the coming of Jesus with so many liturgical symbols? Well, (laughs) the answer is, is quite straightforward. Christ is coming to the church in the liturgy. And yet there are even deeper implications. When John speaks about the liturgy in the book of Revelation, he doesn't just speak of an earthly liturgy. No, it's pretty clear. A heavenly liturgy, a liturgy in heaven. We might have expected John to show the early Christians singing hymns on earth as Jesus returns in glory. No. Instead, John shows us that it is the angels and saints in heaven who sing what? Holy, holy, holy. John shows us that the liturgy we celebrate is the same as the liturgy of the angels. Going back to what Benedict said, what we share in the Eucharist today is what is anticipated in heaven. My dear friends, we are worshiping with them. In other words, the apocalypse shows us that when we celebrate the liturgy on earth, we join with the angels and saints in their liturgy in heaven. You know, Revelation teaches us that heaven touches down to earth on the altars of our parish churches every time we gather for Mass. And remember, my friends, something about the meaning of the perpetual banquet. When Jesus says, I will be with you until the end of time, he means that literally every second of every day. If you were to take the total number of priests today, 346,000, I believe it is, and begin to play with the math, breaking it down in seconds and minutes and hours, it means that four hosts are being consecrated every second of every day. Wow. Amen to that. The liturgy, my friends, we celebrate is not our own. In the Mass, we are taken up into heaven and stand with with the angels and saints as they praise God forever in His presence. And let me tell you again, if in fact our beloved friend nephew Joseph is in heaven. This is the very thing that he's sharing in right now. This is what we have to look forward to, this eternal worship of the one true God, singing with the choirs of angels and saints. Extraordinary to think about. Extraordinary to think about that those who are closest to us, who have passed, are sharing in the very thing that we are reflecting into. Brothers and sisters, what did Benedict say? This is a reality, and in faith, we rejoice over this reality. In the Mass, we are taken up, and this is just so beautiful. When we are at Mass, my friends, we lift up our hearts, right? And we are caught up in the Spirit, much like John was. We stand next to our departed loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord. We stand next to our patron saints and guardian angels, In a real way, we leave earth and are transported to the heavenly Jerusalem. This is why when we go to Mass, those who who have gone before us are next to us. If you are Catholic and, and it's been very difficult this past week, go to Mass. Joseph's right next to you, you see. My dear friends, 
The book of Revelation teaches the church how to celebrate. That is why the early church used the apocalypse in designing churches and developing the liturgy, right? As noted by uh, Michael Barber in his work Coming Soon, you know, the great liturgical scholar Gregory Dix explains that from the earliest times, the arrangement of the Christian assembly at Mass was modeled on what John saw in the book of Revelation. Mm. This is why the altar was placed at the front of the congregation, just as in John's vision where everything centers upon the golden altar, which is before the throne of God. Likewise, images of angels and saints in a church remind the faithful that they are sharing in the heavenly liturgy. Similarly, the celebrant's chair symbolizes the throne of God. As Gregory Dix explains, the early arrangement of smaller chairs in a semi-circle around the throne of the bishop was meant to image the seats of the 24 elders around the throne of the Lamb. I love the line from Cardinal Ratzinger in reflecting upon this when he says, the book of the heavenly liturgy, which is presented to the church as the standard for her own liturgy. Amen. My dear friends, I have a few more thoughts, but uh, we are out of time, so we need to wrap up. We will pick up here where we left off and in our next installment in our series of reflections on the book of Revelation, I hope to start to actually begin to work through the verses themselves. And I just want to close with one last um, word about Joseph. I sit here and I'm struck by the fact that in God's providential timing of things, we are talking about what we are talking about when I am made to reflect upon Joseph. I think the Lord is cluing us in that he might be sharing in something right now, sharing in something that is so beautiful, so hopeful, huh? All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this evening to not only reflect into the relationship between the book of Revelation and liturgy, but to do so within the context of, Lord, what many of us might be going through and the way in which we are dealing with uh, Joseph's death, that we might indeed come to understand where there is death, there is life, and life comes to us in worship. I personally feel, Heavenly Father, compelled to intercede on behalf of all my brothers and sisters as we are drawn into the mystery of death, and in so doing, drawn into the mystery of how we are called to worship you as the one true God. Amen. And we close with a prayer to Our Lady, who is so close to Joseph. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.